Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. A fantastic segment uh, before the break with the Syrian girl. If you missed any of the live broadcasts, if you're joining us late this week, uh, you can catch this on the podcasting platforms after the show on iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and a number of other platforms, Spreaker.com as well. Now, our next guest, uh, we're very happy to have finally caught up with our next guest. He is uh, a veteran, I would say, reporter, uh, probably doesn't like using the term journalist, we can talk about that, <laughs> but uh, he's intrepid uh, more so than a lot of people who are reporting. Has been on the ground in a number of countries, has seen a number of things, uh, certainly in, the, in terms of revolutions, color revolutions, uprisings, the sort of things that we're seeing so much of uh, in the last few months. He's just recently come back from an extended assignment in Hong Kong, right there in the sort of middle of what was going on there over the last couple of months. His name is Andre Vilcek. He is also reporting for RT and a number of other outlets, too many probably to mention here. There's a link to his publishing company as well on the show page. And uh, he's joining us now on the live link from Asia. Hello, Andre. Hello, Patrick. <laughs> nice being on your show finally. Yes, it's great. Great to great to have you, Andre. And, you know, I've, I've just followed your work vicariously around the world uh, through your articles that are very descriptive. Uh, you've also, well, people can go to your to the link to your publishing company uh, on on the show page. You've also written a few books as well. You've worked on a number of documentary films. Uh, so I think you're probably very well qualified to comment on what's going on right now in the world. A lot of people, Andre, have said there are so many uprisings and protests going on simultaneously. So my first question to you is, have they always been going on, or are we just more aware that these are going on now, or is there a noticeable increase in these types of events? How are you seeing this right now, globally? Well, Patrick, there are simultaneously going on uh, two types of uh, uprisings, and unfortunately, the Western mass media tries to put them all together and create some kind of a goulash by mixing them all together. So we have this, uh, let's separate them somehow. There is a, a Hong Kong, uh, uh, there are Hong Kong riots uh, happening uh, already for several months. Um, and I uh, was based in a city for, um, for a couple of weeks. Uh, I have a history with Hong Kong for actually some 20 years. But uh, lately I spent two weeks there and... Uh, uh, commented a lot through my writing, but also through RT, Press TV, and uh, other outlets about what's going on. So that's one type of, uh, uh, and we will come back to this, uh, that's one type of uh, uh, uprising, or I call it uh, more uh, a riot. Then the second type is uh, really a revolutionary uh, movement that is sweeping uh, uh, several countries all over the world, and they are as diverse as uh, Lebanon uh, and Chile. And we will talk about this as well. But uh, first, uh, to Hong Kong. Uh, look, the West is already trying for many, many years and months uh, to do everything possible to discredit and to provoke China. 
It doesn't stop at anything. I recently wrote an entire book, which will be very soon published. It's about the uh, Uyghurs um, in uh, northwest China, which uh, is, again, the rallying cry of the Western mass media. Uh, Uyghurs are being depicted as victims and so on. But in reality, uh, there is an enormous uh, attempt to use uh, uh, Uyghurs by the West and by Turkey uh, to uh, destroy Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, Uyghurs are injected, uh, have been injected by Turkey and the West uh, into Syria. They operate in Afghanistan and so on. And their only purpose is to uh, get as hardened as possible and to return to China and to break China to pieces. Uh, so I wrote the whole book. I investigated in Afghanistan, in Indonesia, in Syria itself, uh, uh, next to Idlib and in uh, Turkey. So that's uh, one uh, attempt uh, to uh, destabilize China. Of course, there is Taiwan, there is South China Sea. We can talk about it later. But Hong Kong is definitely one of uh, the hotspots that was depicted lately by the uh, by the West uh, the West is using frustration of Hong Kong young people. And here is a paradox. What is happening in Hong Kong is actually very paradoxical. The young people in Hong Kong, many of them actually are frustrated with turbo capitalist system, which the city has and uh, with the British uh, legacy of British colonialist legacy. So what do we have in Hong Kong? The highest prices on earth. It's the most expensive city on earth. You can, we pay 700 US dollars even to park your car from Monday to Friday for one month, uh, only during the working hours. 700 US. You uh, pay $1.2 million in Hong Kong for tiny apartment uh, for tiny condominium, which is not even new and it's not even in the uh, in the very center, young people cannot get jobs. They uh, they graduate they uh, uh, from universities from decent universities. They cannot get a decent job that would guarantee them uh, uh, at least some kind of a basic standard of living and uh, when they could uh, survive in their own city. So they're very frustrated, uh, and uh, they. Uh, are fueling, they are actually channeling their frustration at the absolutely wrong target. Because all these things that they are protesting against uh, are being addressed in, uh, across the borderline or across the line by the People's Republic of China, which is leaving actually Hong Kong behind. The Chinese cities like Shenzhen, uh, Guangzhou, but also Xi'an, not to speak about Shanghai or Beijing, are now uh, counting on much better cultural life, much better infrastructure, uh, huge public areas, uh, you know, even things like exercise machines for the kids or for the elderly people. Well, Hong Kong is living this uh, total capitalist uh, nightmare. So logically, they, uh, the young people in Hong Kong should be demanding more Beijing, not lesser Beijing. But they are brainwashed already for many, many years. And they are actually many of them are financed uh, uh, by the U.S., by U.K., uh, by other uh, Western countries uh, to protest and to uh, do maximum possible damage 
to China and to China's, uh, China's reputation. So they are actually protesting against Beijing, uh, Beijing's so-called rule, while they should be protesting against the archaic, horrible uh, laws, including uh, the the uh, law which was uh, supposed to be challenged by the extradition, uh, extradition law that was uh, recently uh, cancelled. So we have this absolutely absurd situation. And these kids don't want to hear anything uh, that would be... Uh, uh, contrary to their uh, to their uh, ideas about the, how the world is uh, arranged, this uprising is nothing new. There was a first wave of it was so called uh, umbrella uh, revolution. Uh, it was in 2014, and these people already then didn't want to listen ab about anything negative that was coming from the West. You could ask them about Iraq, you could ask them about Afghanistan. Uh, um, you know, then they wouldn't beat you up, but they would really. Uh, be very aggressive with you. And now they beat up people who are challenging them up, actually. And they call it fight for democracy. You know, uh, you ask them, what do they want? And they would say, we want democracy. And you ask them, what is democracy uh, from your point of view? And they would say, well, it's what they have in the West. But then it ends, you know, because there is not really much they can tell about how so-called democracy is uh, uh, implemented in the parts of the world that are, uh, you know, occupied by the West, intimidated by the West or attacked by the West. So um, that's uh, Hong Kong, you know, and the Western media, mass media is extremely uh, supportive of them. Actually, uh, I was watching uh, Western media at work. I was filming them working actually in Hong Kong because it was so ridiculous. It was so absolutely uh, uh, absurd. Uh, you would uh, have Western media journalists, camera people filming protesters, waving American flags, yelling that they want to be liberated by the United States. Uh, these protesters were walk walking through the downtown, uh, you know, just. Uh, singing U.S. national anthems and so on. Uh, 50 meters away or 100 meters away, the rioters uh, would be destroying public property like uh, subway stations, uh, railing that's supposed to protect people from falling under the cars and the uh, separating sidewalks and highways. And uh, there was no Western camera uh, person filming this. So whenever the, the, the protesters or so-called protesters, the rioters really, would start destroying the public property, attacking police, uh, intimidating people, even beating up people for waving uh, uh, Chinese flags. I mean, we're talking about China, right? I mean, Hong Kong is part of China, so uh, they would be beating people, waving Chinese flags. There were there were there were no uh, UK or US uh, camera people capturing this. They were capturing the glorious moments of these people yelling through their masks, actually, that were covering their faces about democracy and freedom, and I don't know what. So you know, I mean. Uh, in, you, in some countries in the West, you cannot even, now for Muslim people, it's uh, forbidden to wear, uh, to, to have their faces covered. But uh, to wear uh, face covers uh, while attacking police uh, in Hong Kong, uh, just because uh, the uh, police is uh, seen as uh, some kind of a pro-Chinese force, that's allowed, that's even supported. So that's about Hong Kong in brief.
And it, it, the mask thing is very interesting because uh, you know, I remember when the WTO, the first w, big WTO protests in America, they, they were in Seattle. You probably remember. Yes. Uh, I think this was back in the late 90s, 98, 99. And that's when I first saw people kind of max, masked up, basically. And Black Bloc sort of emerged uh, from that, these anarchist groups. And so yes. I saw what was going on in Hong Kong and there's there's a photograph that you took that is just amazing. It's you you're you've just you're looking down under an underpass, and I just yes. see thousands of young people with masks on waiting to come up from up from under the underpass. You, I don't know yeah. if you know what photo I'm talking about. I it's know exactly. Uh, it was yes. Uh, they look like ninjas. You know, they their culture is actually extremely. Uh, uh, it's a pop culture. It's a uh, uh, it's a selfie generation culture, and uh, you know I think this is how they got these people. The West, you know, they they basically uh, they were nobody. They couldn't get jobs. They were uh, uh, kind of uh, living in uh, houses and apartments uh, of their parents because they couldn't afford uh, their own habitat, and they uh, they were frustrated uh, with the fact that Hong Kong is losing. Uh, uh, its edge over China. In fact, it lost the edge over mainland China because Chinese cities are uh, in much better shape and they're very optimistic uh, and so on. So they suddenly felt that this is their moment in time in history and they actually uh, can, uh, uh, this will be the probably most important uh, a moment in their life. This is what will be remembered about them. And it's it's typical selfie thing. So on one hand, they're covering their faces. And I know the photo you are talking about. Uh, on the other hand, they really are dying to be exposed, to be listened to, uh, even if they say nothing uh, significant. So it is... Uh, uh, Actually, if you analyze this, it's a very sad, very pathetic thing. You know, I went to the old uh, British uh, jail, which is uh, under the Chinese rule. It was converted uh, uh, into the wonderful, wonderful cultural center. It's a tremendous cultural center uh, on, uh, consisting on several buildings and layers and all that. Uh, before it, they used to beat Hong Kong people. The Brits used to pull down their pants like in Punjab and in India and uh, and just uh, cane them, uh, you know, like uh, humiliate them like little children. So now there is this uh, cultural center. And I went to talk to a curator. He was a very nice uh, man, 65 years old, uh, old man. And, you know, he said something that really uh, depict the reality of, uh, of, this, uh, of these riots. He said, you know, what they achieved is that uh, the families are now divided. It never happened in Hong Kong. Uh, grandfather, father is afraid to talk to his son or daughter. He said, this is not Chinese culture. This is not, it never happened like this before. But this is what they did. And they uh, actually attack they uh, intimidate their own family members, as they do intimidate, of course, people in the malls and uh, uh, at the subway stations. 
and so on. And this man was just so sad because it uh, it uh, appeared that he uh, something was dying in his city. You know, it was uh, uh, at least the respect that here in Asia uh, exists towards the older generations, whatever we agree with it or not. But that's how uh, Chinese culture. That's on what the Chinese culture is uh, being based. And these young people are actually destroying it. But destroying for what? They're fighting their own country. Whatever they want it or not, uh, Hong Kong is part of China. China is their country. And they're treasonously uh, throwing the Chinese flags to the, to the bay. And then they ask President uh, Trump, please liberate us from China. How can somebody liberate you from yourself? <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing flying American and British flags. And as you pointed out, Andrea, it was uh, it was no utopia under British uh, rule, Hong Kong. Oh, no. Certainly wasn't. You remember uh, probably uh, the old... uh photographs and not so old photographs when uh, when actually people were living in slums uh, in uh, uh, Hong Kong and these slums were just so horrific that uh, now it's uh, uh, when they are gone they, they actually there is uh, there is a photo permanent like photo exhibition memorial park about this I mean it was just horrific and uh, they were torturing people they were killing people the Brits they were caning people and, and these kids don't remember. They don't know. You know, one of the flags they're waving is the is the British flag uh, with the the Hong Kong colonial British flag uh, um, that was used uh, by the by the by the empire by the British Empire. They are waving this. They want this back. They have no idea. You know, uh, make Hong Kong. Uh, Great Britain again is one of the logos that they were using. You know, it's like Trump is saying, uh, uh, "Make America great again." So, I mean, this is what they used so in 2014. They had English bulldog, and they had uh, as a symbol. They had Churchill as a symbol. You know, it's uh, it's just absolutely unbelievable. And look what China is doing. The the um, mainland China, it's doing basically nothing. Again, uh, if you compare uh, how the Gilets the yellow vests are treated, uh, or uh, the Barcelona, uh, the, the Catalan uh, independence uh, movement is treated. This is nothing. In China, then, uh, if you compare it to uh, Ecuador or uh, to Chile, where we are going to go uh, soon, uh, about which we are going to talk soon, uh, you know, it's uh, just totally ridiculous. Look, I covered many, many riots, wars, demonstrations uh, all over the world. Okay, we don't have to go to extremes. We don't have to go to Afghanistan or something. But even in countries like Turkey or uh, countries like uh, Peru, uh, when uh, the demonstrators are encountering police, police is shooting uh, water full of excrements and urine very often. The gas they were using in during the Gezi Park uprising in Istanbul or in Egypt uh, when there were the, uh, you know, uh, protests against Morsi, you would die 
from these people were covering themselves by anything because uh, if it would hit you to the, the, the gas, you would just collapse totally. And people, we were carrying people in Egypt and in Turkey and in Peru, uh, you know, to the cars and away from the action because uh, the gas itself could totally knock you out. In Hong Kong, the gas they are using is like of the mildest of the mildest uh, uh, nature, the water they are using is basically the famous potable water of uh, of Hong Kong. You can drink this stuff, <laughs> you know. So this is this is the only thing uh, they can, and they protest against the police brutality now. You know, they throw the bottles, uh, they they throw molotovs basically at the police, and they then they protest about uh, police brutality, and because it's it's a selfie thing, you know they. That's what they want to feel. They want to feel that they are heroes, that they want to feel they are great liberators of Hong Kong. And you know what? They cannot stand them, the majority of people. I'm going back in December. Uh, I was invited by like just every uh, people are writing to me. They said, please come back. The Hong Kong citizens, they said, please come back because we are the silent majority that you mentioned. We want to talk to you. And these are people who are pro-Beijing pro or these are like business people. There, there is no like a group that you could uh, just say that uh, it's so diverse. People who cannot stand this, uh, uh, this so-called uprising, and they were hated already uh, four or five years ago by their own, uh, you know, fellow citizens. Because for them, uh, you know, Hong Kong people are very pragmatic. You know, they 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 just want to go on with their life, and this is destroying the city totally. The tourist arrivals are down; uh, they were down forty percent. Now I don't know. The economy is going to shrink. Shrink? Can you imagine? I mean, it's uh, in uh, in North Asia. This is unthinkable, except in Japan. So um, basically, they're they are destroying the, the 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 infrastructure. They are destroying the economy, and they are destroying confidence. People are moving businesses, even businesses. They want capitalism. They want the West. Well, Western companies are moving to Singapore and Shanghai. You know, they don't speak English in Hong Kong. They want Great Britain back, but they don't speak English. They don't speak Mandarin out of spite. So they all speak Cantonese. They don't. Uh, so people go to Singapore, which is much more pro-Chinese. And where people speak everything, they speak uh, English, they speak uh, Mandarin, and they speak Cantonese, they speak everything there. Or they go to Shanghai, which is a much more pleasant uh, and much more exciting city. So they are shooting themselves to the foot instead of trying to reform the city and make it, uh, uh, you know, great through cultural diversity, through uh, uh, through innovative uh, thinking that they just uh, uh, are making everybody mad in the region by calling Brits and Americans back to to to, to you know to uh, turn their city into a colony and and uh, we'll, we'll we'll move on to to Chile in a second but before we do you you brought up a point I just think we need to um, touch on because I think you brought up something that is incredibly important. You talked about the, the separating of the generations, uh, pitting the young against the old, especially in, in Chinese culture. That's a big thing because the respect for elders and the respect for the older generation, as you said, society is constructed around this concept. And there's a film that we have uh, featured uh, on, our, on our main section today. It's called The Revolution Business, and it talks about agencies like uh, Opdoor, 
uh, that receive quite a lot of U.S. funding from USAID over the years or the State Department, like the National Endowment for Democracy. But there's these regime change or revolution agencies. Now, this one sprouted out of Serbia, actually. It's called Canvas now. But they, they train activists. And there's different kind of sure. methods of training. They reframing is is a term that that's used in this. It's a corporate uh, it's a corporate concept that's made its way into activism. So so when you talked about the generations uh, pitting the young against the old, they do the same with gender in traditional societies, women against men, and kind of injecting these Western commercial uh, commercialized concepts of uh, political identity, for instance, or generational identity, all these things that are so effective at selling products uh, in in the West over the years, it's almost like it's been weaponized. Do you think that there's a a kind of a, do you think this is being seeded in a place like Hong Kong by Western, yeah, go ahead. Most definitely, Patrick, most definitely. Uh, Sorry, there was an echo a little bit, Uh, it was breaking, but now it's fine again, the signal. Yes, uh, what you said is absolutely uh, uh, correct, and they use many different things, Uh, they they are lightening up the entire, they, they are discrediting also the idea of the of the socialism, of communism, of course, they they uh, implant these ideas against the People's Republic of China, uh, and uh, no matter how successful uh, People's Republic is, uh, they will always find a way how to uh, recruit the uh, young kids. Uh, in places like Hong Kong, they turn uh, consumerism uh, into pop. They uh, turn it into something hip. Uh, so they basically inject young people with the ideas that, look, uh, to be a communist or to be a uh, good citizen of China or building your fatherland or building your country is something very outdated and very boring. And you are like nobody. You, if you do this, if you believe in this, you are nobody. You are just not. Uh, you are not up to. You are not in living in 21st century. Now to protest against protest against communism is hip. You know to to protest against. Uh, your country is hip. And they do it only, of course, uh, against the countries that they want to discredit. Uh, and this is where the big contrast comes uh, with what we see in the places uh, uh, like Chile or in uh, like Ecuador or in uh, or in, or in Lebanon. So uh, here at the beginning of the show, we said that uh, uh, the, the Western media is actually trying to create this one big goulash, one big uh, cocktail out of all this. They mix uh, all this and they say, well, you see, this is the this is what is happening in the 21st century. Now we are dealing with all the uprising, uh, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Santiago, Beirut. Well, Actually, these uprisings have uh, uh, nothing in common except that they are going against the savage right-wing capitalism. Uh, You know, uh, in Hong Kong, kids are not aware that what really irks them, what makes them so unhappy is capitalism. They were brainwashed into believing that it's because of the influence of China. Contrary is the truth. But in places like Beirut or Santiago, or in Quito, they finally understood. I mean, Chile is awaking, is a symbol, is a rallying cry of the people. And Chile is actually very dangerous uh, uh, place for the West, for the demagogues and propagandists in the West, because Chile is 
tremendously educated country. I lived there for many years and I will soon live there again. I love the country despite all this, uh, uh, you know, right wing returning for a while. Like it's, it's, it's a country of uh, poets, of two Nobel Prizes for poetry. It's a country of dreamers and it's a country where uh, people like Freire and great educators actually uh, used to operate before 1973, uh, September 11, 1973, coup performed by the people like Kissinger and the Chase Manhattan at ITT. So it used to be, and it still is, tremendously a powerful, it's an intellectual powerhouse. And in Chile, uh, after Pinochet stepped down, after the US and Western-backed dictator Pinochet stepped down, uh, Chile was not poor, but it had the worst uh, uh, distribution of wealth in Latin America. So after that, the socialist governments came to power, and many would argue that they were not really socialist, that they were center-left and all this, and they were. But it, they were actually there was an attempt by the society to recreate again socialist Chile that was destroyed on 9-11-73 by Pinochet's coup. So the attempt lasted for many years. And uh, of course, country improved, despite the fact that it was not too left, it was center left. Uh, you know, corruption was slow, small, or the, or relatively manageable. The, the uh, You know, the economy was growing tremendously. Uh, it was, uh, Chile became the country on the level of the uh, European Union nations like uh, Czech Republic or, uh, or Czechia, now they call it, uh, or uh, Greece or uh, Portugal or richer even than Greece and Portugal. Well, human development index, it became one of the, but it still had this, uh, uh, you know, an equally distributed income. And then plus what happened was actually terrible because as I am mentioning now in my latest essay, it's almost like quoting great French writer Albert Camus and his uh, novel Plague. Uh, at the end of the novel, you know, when uh, Plague is fascism. At the end of the novel, when the doctors are actually uh, metaphorically fighting the plague, uh, the, uh, the doctor who was chief physician in fighting it and winning it, he said, well, uh, and I paraphrase, he said, yes, it's great, we won, but, you know, plague uh, never disappears. It hides uh, uh, under the, uh, you know, in the walls, it, it cracks in the walls, they, they, it, uh, it hides uh, 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 in the ceiling, and then uh, it, one moment without you realizing it will send it rats to one of, of the happy cities. And this is exactly what happened in Chile, you know, it was all looking so well, but the fascism from Pinochet era was sitting there somewhere in the elites, among the elites, among the uh, people who were uh, controlling the uh, right-wing political parties like uh, Piñera, you know, the president. And suddenly it hit, suddenly people realized that it uh, it is there again, controlling the society. And so when uh, the government was going to raise the subway or metro fare by only four cents, the country erupted because they understood something is wrong. You know, you have this country like uh, uh, on par with maybe France 
uh, in terms of standard of living. And you have slums. Okay, of course, slums. France is slums too now. But it has slums and it has people in the villages living on like uh, $300, $400. It's not right. And Chilean people, they always were dreaming about the egalitarian uh, society and something broke they understood and that's where the slogan chile uh, woke up came to and these people are fighting now for democracy for democracy real democracy not this uh, pathetic slogan of democracy they know what democracy is they died for democracy after 73 they were dying for uh, decades in the fighting pinochet in the mountains the mir for example movement and all this women were raped but they were still fighting uh, after being released it's a very brave nation you know and uh, so I think they understood that uh, this fascism is somehow back. And now they are not going to back up. They are going to fight until Pinera is going to uh, resign. He offered today, yesterday, that he's going to sack the ministers. He's going to totally reshuffle the government. It's not enough. This is not enough. They were fooled. They knew, they know, the, the people of Chile, they know that they were fooled with this so-called democracy. They voted for Pinera, you know. They voted for him uh, the second time. First time, then uh, in Chile, you can be only a president for one term, and then there has to be someone uh, in between, and then you can be reelected. He was once already a president. Then socialist uh, Michel Bachelet uh, is, uh, uh, became president again, and now he's uh, back in uh, La Moneda, in the presidential palace. But this is tremendous fight. This is tremendous struggle. And it's not Hong Kong, you know. The people died. 18 people died, 17 people died, they are not sure. You know, some died in a, uh, in a supermarket that was burning, but five people died fighting in the hands of police. People, thousands are uh, were arrested, people are tortured. Can you imagine the, the, the trauma for the older generation when, uh, who remember Pinochet? They, they have tanks in the streets of Santiago. They have uh, armed vehicles. They have military kicking their children to the head. You know, this is... Um, uh, that's unbelievable. I never thought I would see that again in that country, considering what has happened in history. That the, the images were so strong before that you'd think that would be just such a deterrent for that to return, that kind of military overlord situation. But it has. I, I find that incredible, Andre. I cannot believe it. Look, I lived there. Uh, uh, I still remember my best friend, uh, a Chilean architect and photographer. I still remember three years after uh, 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 dictatorship collapse, we were driving together and uh, police stopped us for speeding. I was going like 20 kilometers over a speed limit and nothing happened. Oh, you know, and uh, we just... Uh, paint some fine, I don't remember. And then I looked at my friend, he's a famous architect, and he was shaking. He was sweating next to me, you know? Because the, for him to encounter Paco, the, the police, was like, uh, you know, anything could happen. He could disappear, I could disappear, his best friend. You know, it was just terrible. And mm -hmm. this is what uh, 
the older generation of people now uh, uh, lives through. I mean, they, uh, but look at this enormous uh, hope in Chile. Look at these uh, young girls who are in peace now. Uh, they are fighting, they are at the barricades, uh, the young people, the old people all together, you know. I mean, uh, uh, it's a tremendous one million uh, march, uh, uh, rejection of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, compromises that are coming from uh, from Piñera. And it's beautiful because, uh, look, it's uh, they are going to win. I know they, they are going to win and I know that uh, basically there is going to be, uh, this is going to, this is already the new wave of the Latin America taking back its, uh, it's uh, taking back its, uh, you know, left-wing, uh, it's left-wing movements. It's incredible, basically, what is happening. We see it in Argentina. We see it uh, uh, where the elections are just uh, uh, happening. We saw it in Bolivia. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a return. And, uh, and I think in Ecuador, the same thing will happen, too, because uh, uh, the, the Lenin Moreno totally... Uh, he totally uh, uh, betrayed... Uh, he betrayed the people. He betrayed the trust. He betrayed Korea first, and now he's betraying, betraying the nation. And do, do, you, do you think there's a correlation? And let's just take a step back and look at some of these situations. And I know that uh, each of these uh, you know, uprisings, each of these political situations in these different countries are unique on on number of levels. And like you said, you can't throw them all into one goulash or soup as as the, the mainstream uh uh, press likes to do and politicians like to do, but do you think there's a correlation between the the, the amount of debt uh, that a country is being forced to take on? And uh, just look at Ecuador as an example. The IMF were just throwing money at this country over the last two years, especially, and you have structural deficiencies that really have to do with not being self-sufficient not being able to manage your own economy, being dependent on foreign loans and aid and your pro your markets are full of foreign products and things like this. It, it, if you don't fix those problems, then you, you would just kind of remain in this, this, this uh, cycle, this inhale exhale between fascism and, uh, and kind of left-wing uprisings, but the structural problems of the countries never leave. In other words, I think the U S has pow such power uh, the Western countries have such power to dictate these economic structures with these countries that if they can't break free from that, it's very difficult to, you know, get escape velocity, as they call it, Andre. What what, what are your thoughts on, on this issue? Well, basically, uh, the IMF, uh, uh, the World Bank, they had such a uh, negative uh, influence uh, on Latin America. In Latin America, people see them as... Uh, extended arm of the Western imperialism. So it's uh, 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 what what happened in uh, uh, Argentina during the presidency of uh, Christina Kirchner and her husband, they uh, created some sort of, uh, they created some sort of the situation, they created some sort of uh, environment in which it was understood by the people uh, of uh, uh, Argentina that uh, uh, these organizations cannot be allowed to interfere in the way the country is uh, being governed. Then uh, 
after the discre- uh, this enormous uh, campaign to discredit Kirshner's, the similar campaign that always happens uh, in Latin America against the uh, progressive presidents, as happened in uh, Brazil or has happened in Ecuador and recently in Bolivia, after these enormous media campaigns financed, of course, by the West and very often by the uh, by the international so-called international organizations, uh, the uh, revolution was derailed. And uh, in the case of Argentina, President Macri came to power. And Macri is uh, like a Thatcherite. He's a, he's a neoliberal. But, uh, you know, these people managed to, to get to power through the propaganda that was uh, bombarded against the, uh, against the socialist uh, governments. You know, usually the, what is used as a, as a, as a sword against them is, is corruption. Corruption is uh, uh, always uh, something that is thrown against our people, against the left uh, in uh, in Latin America. So you have, uh, for instance, a situation when uh, uh, they find something, like in case of Brazil, they find that some company uh, painted the apartment of Lula. So Lula gets uh, uh, thrown to jail and uh, he cannot uh, run for president. But these countries, like Brazil, like Argentina, like Chile, uh, these countries actually had uh, such horrible dictatorships, totally corrupt, uh, not by painting apartment or even giving apartment. They were corrupted uh, to the point when uh, they were stealing everything from their own countries. So these Things are put on the same, uh, and if you have a good media, uh, good, I mean, propaganda machine, then you can, of course, then you can convince people about anything, and then they vote these uh, uh, right-wing fascist governments, like that of Macri, like Piñera in Chile, uh, or uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. So I think this is all uh, a tremendous, uh, all a tremendous. Uh, uh, involvement uh, from the from the from abroad from the west and it was like this for decades mm-hmm. yeah and and how, how has venezuela been able to avoid a lot of this kind of uh, tumultuous uh, upheavals they they've sort of with all that's happened to venezuela over the last say 18 months they've somehow with hyperinflation and everything they've somehow managed to remain stable and a lot of people think this is incredible what's what's the difference between venezuela and some of these other countries in latin america well actually in venezuela it was interesting i was in rome uh uh, two months ago, speaking at Sapienza University, and uh, I met the charge d'affaires of uh, Venezuelan embassy to uh, Italy, and we had a nice chat, and she said, uh, look, uh, don't. Uh, the West is talking about the crisis in Venezuela, but look at our performance in education, in uh, vaccination, with uh, all these things. A country, despite all the horror that it was thrown uh, uh, into, is functioning uh, relatively well. And it is functioning, look, um, it is functioning uh, relatively well, although, of course, there is a huge uh, immigration because of economical. So they try to turn Venezuela into Syria, uh, but uh, somehow they are not succeeded, uh, succeeding because uh, countries like China, like Russia, but also uh, Iran and other, and Cuba, of course, they, they caught the crisis long before it uh, managed to degenerate or deteriorate to the to the Syrian level. So uh, Venezuela, of course, is struggling, but Venezuela has uh, 
a very powerful uh, um, uh, the government of Venezuela has very powerful support from the uh, from the lower classes and from the uh, also thinking Venezuelans from the intellectual uh, I hate to call it elites but uh, from uh, uh, from uh, uh, in uh, Venezuelan uh, intelligentsia uh, or intelligentsia yes so uh, it is uh, uh, actually incredible because again there is this revolutionary pathos which um, helped Cuba to survive right in the at the beginning during the old or during all the struggle and uh, the embargoes and collapse of the Soviet Union support and all that. So uh, basically, uh, Venezuela didn't avoid, uh, didn't uh, or didn't manage to avoid uh, being terrorized and being uh, uh, or attacked. But Venezuela actually mobilized uh, uh, its uh, forces and it also managed to mobilize its allies. And Venezuela, at some point was in a similar situation as Cuba uh, during the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. Actually, except uh, one or two countries, nobody was uh, uh, support or too much supportive of it. And then uh, things changed again. Now uh, Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, uh, Bolivia, they are all standing uh, uh, with Venezuela. It's not really discussed very much. Uh, in uh, Western media, but it is incredible how the country uh, managed to survive and uh, uh, and to become stronger. Now th- they do many things right. Uh, I mean, I have a friend uh, 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 who is a former World Bank economist to turn around and uh, attack the World Bank. He's helping them to de-dollarize. Uh, you know, he's helping the government of Venezuela to de-dollarize. There are many ways to to actually deal with the situation. They need to uh, diversify their economy, of course, which they didn't have time. I talked to Venezuelan government people uh, and they admitted that it was a mistake to uh, not to diversify economy when the dollar, uh, when the oil was, uh, uh, prices for oil were uh, high and all that. So what they did um, uh, actually was to try to distribute uh, wealth among the people. They were too busy fighting poverty. They were too busy uh, creating this patria grande, big motherland or big fatherland, sorry, of Latin America. And they didn't pay too much uh, attention uh, to economy. And uh, that was a mistake. But all these things uh, uh, are now uh, being uh, uh, analyzed. And uh, uh, I think Venezuela has a great uh, potential to to survive. It looked like the West is going to, US is going to attack, and they totally, they got bloody nose, because they would have to really fight. You know, Venezuela is not Syria. Syria is a great nation. They're very tough fighters. They're very patriotic. But they, their terrain is not so great for fighting. But Venezuela is like, you cannot win. If you really attack Venezuela, you cannot win the war there, because uh, you have a jungle, deep, impenetrable jungle next to Kanaima. Uh, you, uh, you have uh, Andes, you know, covered by lower altitudes, covered by uh, forests. You, you cannot, it's it's basically partisan war uh, uh, would uh, erupt and there is no way to, to win the war against uh, Venezuela if the if the country is determined. And they, they got scared, the West got scared. They didn't dare to really attack. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're also really relying on uh, Colombia to be the the junior partner in in that effort, and uh, and that's for the, all the reasons you just mentioned right there. That's e- hugely problematic, 
Uh, yes, it can backfire. It can backfire big time because Colombia actually is uh, uh, Colombia has its own horrific problems. Actually, much bigger than Venezuela. I mean, Colombians used to go uh, to Venezuela uh, searching for jobs, and uh, uh, you know, not even recently when uh, Venezuelan economy was not doing so so great. And they have, uh, of course, insurgency, the peace talks, and all this collapsed, and they. Uh, they uh, are really facing uh, uh, if they are going to push if they are going to push Venezuela too hard, it can really create the uprising in their own country or to intensify the civil war. And look what happened in Brazil too. When Bolsonaro tried to talk about uh, try to talk Brazilian military into possible intervention uh, in Venezuela, you remember what happened. The top brass of Brazil said, no, 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 this is not what we are going to do. Because they have historically very good, so Bolsonaro himself said he's going to push Brazilian military too far. He may actually uh, pay the price, which we, which many of us, of course, hope that he will pay the price because it's totally unbelievable that somebody like him is uh, the biggest country in Latin America. And and so uh, we've just got a, a few minutes left, and uh, we spoke about Lebanon uh, earlier in the in the show with uh, our guest Marwa Osman uh, about uh, what's going on in Lebanon, and you know you've got a, a a fairly good probably a good take on that situation. Are is Lebanon at a crossroads? Uh, in, yes, in ter- yes. So Lebanon yeah. is broke. First of all, Lebanon is totally broke. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they have only national reserves like ten thousand, ten billion dollars only. They're, they're right now, as we speak, banks have no uh, banks are going to be closed on uh, Monday. There is not going to be any. There, there will be no access to uh, dollars. Uh, it is really very bad situation uh, financially and economically. But it was brewing for a long time. I mean, Lebanon is a very unique case okay lebanon is if you want to see the turbo capitalist society where nothing is social nothing except hezbollah uh, then you go to lebanon you see maseratis ferraris lamborghinis driving uh, through potholes uh, next to beggars next to next to uh, slums you go to marina in zaytunay bay you have yachts uh, uh, my favorite yacht says uh, thank you daddy number 4 which means uh, you know there must be thank you dad number 3 and number 2 and number 1 <laughs> you know so the, and uh, it's totally manic. You go to cafe, you go to even Starbucks, and waiters are wearing like uh, Armani jackets. Uh, you feel like uh, nobody next to them because they are all like they would rather die from hunger, but they would uh, uh, wear expensive clothes. Now the money comes from where? From plundering West Africa, uh, from uh, narcotics. Uh, uh, production in Becca Valley, and these drugs actually are very dangerous. You know, they they also produce combat drugs, and they go to through Saudi Arabia to Yemen and to Syria. Okay, these these drugs are supposed to make you totally mad, so you can kill anything inside without. Uh, they use these drugs. The Uyghurs use them in Idlib area. They're very dangerous. Uh, are you talking about Capticon, uh, yes. Andre? Yes, yes, yes. Then uh, banking, the third thing. So basically Lebanon uh, produces very unsavory amount of money and all this money actually stays in the pockets of the rich people. 
And the rich people in the Lebanon don't care at, about the poor. You, they, they absolutely, they corrupt everything. They strip the country uh, of everything. So now, uh, you know, there was a earlier uprising which was called uh, "You Stink," because the government couldn't even clean the garbage from the streets. You know, they have Turkish barges, power plants docked at the coasts of Lebanon. They're burning uh, fuel because Lebanon cannot produce electricity. Lebanon is importing electricity from these barges and from war-torn Syria. This is how there is not one public transportation unit in the whole Beirut. There are this, the minivans, sorry, if you can call it public transportation. There are minivans going, there are railroads were never rebuilt. It's a totally grotesque situation. On the other hand, Lebanon is tremendously creative. It's very, Lebanese people are very intelligent. They always, you know, as designers, as writers, their filmmakers are great, you know, and uh, they, uh, their academia is very good. So they go abroad and they succeed. But at home, the country is total mess. Nothing works. And it's because of this uh, savage capitalism, because of the involvement of Saudis and all this. The only organization which is taking care of everybody socially is Hezbollah, which is on terrorist list of the West. Again, paradoxically, or understandably, because Hezbollah is fighting Israel uh, historically. You know, uh, with everybody on board, they don't care if it's uh, Shia or Sunni or uh, or or Christian or atheist. They take everybody uh, to their ranks. So uh, Lebanon is uh, in a very complicated position now. People understood what is happening, and these protests are very legitimate. But it is not like Chile again. Because in Chile, there is a clear, uh, determined uh, decision to fight for socialism, uh, for justice, for socialist just, uh, social justice. In Lebanon, they are not there. there. Uh, they have a communist party, they have socialist uh, movements, but they were, their parties are uh, divided along the uh, religious lines. They are, uh, until now. Now they talk about possible unity and all that, but there is no culture of unity. In Lebanon, so uh, it's each it's a very individualistic country. So I see them protesting, and uh, you know, I love them for what they are doing. I think they are absolutely correct to protest. They have a right to build much better country, but do they know politically what they want? I don't think so. Uh, I think they they are still searching for. Uh, uh, they are too influenced by the West. There is no influence from Asia, for example. The, in Lebanon, the, 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 all the influences they know is from uh, uh, from Saudi Arabia and France. You know, I mean, plus of course U.S. or uh, sometimes Iran. All this, but main reference points are uh, Europe and uh, Saudi Arabia and Gulf. They know nothing about China. Zero. They know nothing even about Japan. Forget about communist China, but also uh, capitalist Japan. They know nothing. So, and they know a little bit about West Africa because uh, West Africa because uh, because they are plundering it. So there, there is no um, there are no models really that uh, would inspire them. You know, in Iran, they can they are very close to Venezuela, for example. Uh, South Africa is. Uh, uh, very close to Venezuela too. Uh, there are blocks, there are uh, groups uh, of countries that cooperate. Lebanon is on its own, basically. Mm.
Yeah, while, so influenced, while influenced very negatively uh, by, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia, because uh, Hariri, the, uh, he has double citizenship. So whenever Saudi and uh, Lebanese, so whenever he does something, some blunder, they, they uh, you know, tell him to go to Riyadh and, uh, and he gets bashing. So it's... <laughs> So it'll be interesting to see uh, you know, how how it plays out. I think the big fear, it's almost in, in you you you've laid out a vision for the future or or an imperative to to try to see something that can work uh, to overcome the systemic problems of Lebanon. But the the other thing is there's this big fear. The elephant in the room is that civil war will return again, and that's almost overshadowing any uh, reform clarity on reform is is the fear of sectarian warfare this is the thing that that lebanon also suffers from um, it's always there uh, because uh, of course it was uh, it was terrible the the, uh, the civil war uh, but also a uh, possible invasion uh, israeli invasion which uh, was uh, really devastating uh, uh, for the country and uh, many uh, many other things and now we have the horror of uh, of uh, economic collapse, and you know it can really happen. They had stolen everything, the elites. You know, I, I lived there in and out for five years. I go to Paris by Air France, and uh, waiting for for the waiting for the luggage. There are all these uh, uh, government officials flying, not business first class, with their wives uh, decked uh, provocatively in the most expensive designer stuff you can, you can only imagine. These people live in a totally unrealistic world, the elites. They don't care about the poor. Every, poor people in Lebanon do not exist. They don't, it's not that nobody cares. They just don't exist. You know, everything is about the rich and uh, beautiful. The clubs, uh, you know, you wouldn't believe that you are in a half uh, Muslim country or more. I mean, the, the clubs where everybody dances half uh, naked, the, the, the uh, you know, the uh, bars, the uh, theaters, they would die to go and hear old Asnaur singing, uh, uh, the, all this, uh, the, the yachts, the, the, the Lamborghinis, there are people who, who drive like at night without mufflers all over Beirut just to impress whom I don't know. So this is not sustainable <laughs> because uh, because there are people who are starving. There are people who are there are refugees from all over the Palestinians live. Uh, uh, they are treated like animals. They they are in the camps like sardines already for uh, for years. They cannot do anything. They have several jobs only they can uh, they can perform. It's uh, terrible. But again, to give credit to Lebanese, uh, they do address all these things. There was a film called Insult exactly about this. All over, it was shown all over the Middle East. So they write books about it, they show films, and they talk about it. They hate their country, and they love their country. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's like a Buenos Aires, me, 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 show, 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 but without anything social. You know, it's like a turbo-capitalist Buenos Aires. It's a crazy city. You take uh, you, you take the taxi and uh, you start st- oh, he starts asking you what do you think about Lebanon? Is it my country? Isn't it horrible? Isn't it disgusting? I said no, I actually love it. 
He stops and gives you a hug because he thinks you actually made it's what he wanted to hear, you know. <laughs> but he hates it, but he also loves it. So that's uh, precisely Lebanese people, and I like them because they are so uh, insane. Uh, and as a writer, I like this kind of, uh, uh, I love this kind of ambiance. But you go mad there. You go mad. You cannot drive there. Uh, because you're, you know, you're scared to die, and uh, in its, in the same time, the crime rate in Lebanon is so low that you can, in a place that survived the civil war, in a place with like uh, one uh, millions of refugees, there is no fear to walk on the street. You can just go at three in the morning, even if you are a woman. Forget about the man. Man has no problem. Even a lady can walk at two in the morning, and uh, chances are that nothing will ever happen. It's very safe uh, in terms of crime. So it's, uh, but the bomb can go off at any moment, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a it's a place uh, which makes you always passionate. In a, one day it can be very positive passion, or the other day it can be very negative. And I think this is how their uprising, this is how their revolution is going to be also uh, managed. Uh, now I think it's very spontaneous. And uh, it is very sad that there is no uh, stronger intellectual drive to to move it. I mean, I would hope that it go, would go to the left, but it doesn't uh, still. I mean, they say all the right things, but they would never identify themselves with any progressive or left-wing movement. Yeah, and, and certainly the U.S. would uh, do anything within its power to keep to keep that from happening. I can I can assure you. Of uh, course, of yeah. course. And the U.S. is very, com it's, again, it's very complicated relationship. Uh, you know, they're bribing them, basically. They're bribing the elites. You know, the money never, they, they, they always secure money from the U.S., from uh, especially from Saudis, but also from French. And then what happens? None of this money is invested into infrastructure, into social um, services, medical care, uh, education. It's, it's all, all disaster. You have private hospitals some of the best in the Middle East, but, uh, you know, it's only for the rich. The schools, there's some of the best universities, uh, best educational system, again, for the rich. Yeah. For yeah. the majority, nothing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's heartbreaking uh, on, on a number of levels. I, I, I know, I, I love the country and the people very much, uh, yes. but, but it's heartbreaking as well at the same time. It's a very difficult uh it's a very difficult well, one. What will happen to it? Because uh, actually, uh, if it continues like this, there is no future. I mean, people really are at the edge. Uh, and uh, they cannot even uh, now withdraw money from yeah. the banks. Because yeah. dollars, it's blocked. So what is, going, uh, what is going to happen? I don't know. And yeah, definitely, well, I'm going back to Beirut in, a, in three days. Uh, well, uh, I hope... Uh, um, you know, lives are not lost because people are not going to accept again uh, uh, Hariri's uh, half measures like uh, Chileans won't uh, accept uh, Piñera's half measures. But definitely these countries are fighting for their existence. They are fighting, Chile is fighting for socialism, Lebanon is fighting for its survival, and Hong Kong is fighting for this, uh, for the ego trips and selfie images of its spoiled, uh, you know, totally unruly kids. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it is a motley uh, tapestry uh, that we're looking at uh, internationally. And um, well, that's out 
we're out of time for this segment, Andre. But uh, hopefully, we can pick up. We will pick up this thread uh, later on in the future. We'd love to have you back on the program, and uh, we we really appreciate you joining us uh, for this episode uh, of the Sunday Wire, Andre. Patrick, uh, anytime. I would love to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. And uh, if you want to explore some of Andre's work, uh, there's there's quite a deep volume and archive uh, on his uh, website as well, plus his books. There's a link on the show page, but you can also catch him on uh, RT as well uh, in the op-ed section. Uh, you'll see Andre's work. We also have an archive of Andre's work on 21st Century Wire as well. So I do encourage people to go check out Andre Vilcek on the Sunday Wire this week. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're going to have our final segment of Overdrive for this 300th episode with Basil Valentine, our roving correspondent for culture and sport. We're going to find out what the odds are on Brexit. Will Britain actually leave? Basil has new odds on that. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stick around. We'll see you in a minute. I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Dying. 